Thank you, Kent and Renee. Welcome to those of you joining us for our evening service on live stream tonight. We are going to be in the book of Romans chapter 12. First five verses, five familiar verses, I trust to you, uh, from this book of Romans. And I want to talk to you uh, in light of the church at Rome and how Paul addressed this church. So Romans chapter 12, let me read these verses again, follow it as I do. I'm sure they'll be familiar to you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, Paul says, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We'll stop there, though I'm going to read some other verses following that in just a minute. Back to, back to verse 1. Let me point out three words by way of introduction and work backward. You see the word brethren. I beseech you, brethren. Who is he talking about there? Well, in a real way, he's talking about you and me, but in his local context, he's talking about these believers that were in Rome. And that's, of course, why this book is called uh, the Book of, of Romans. Uh, the Roman church was a, a new church, as most churches in that, <laughs> in that first century were, but the gospel got over to Rome uh, slower than it got to the, to the closer one. So they're a new church. They're also a persecuted church, as even we read throughout the New Testament. Uh, at one time, all the Jews had to flee Rome, and the Christians were in trouble, and Paul uh, is executed there and uh, jailed there for a while. So they were a, a very persecuted church, but probably they were a very pure church as well. Uh, a lot of times because of persecution, Believers turn back to the Lord and draw to the Lord, and I think that's probably what happened in Rome also. Now, chapter 12 to the end of the book is the application to that church of how they should live. Of course, the first 11 wonderful chapters are those uh, doctrinal chapters that uh, are unlike almost any other in the Bible. But here in chapter 12 and to the end of the book, he begins to say, okay, I, I've taught you what you believe, now let me tell you how to live in light of what you believe. And, th and that's what we'll be looking at tonight. So there's the word brethren. You, mo you move back one word, and there's the word therefore. How many times have you seen that? You want a little trivia here? I, looked, I, I entered it in. The word therefore appears in the Bible, how many times would you guess? 13,555 times the word therefore in the whole Bible. <laughs> That's, that is a lot of therefores. Well, if we move just to the New Testament, because the Old Testament had a lot of conversational things going on, 419 times in the New Testament this word appears. That's still a lot. And even if you take Paul's uh, epistles that he writes, he uses this word 120 times. That's a lot of times to say, all right, here's what I've said so far, therefore, here's what you need to do. But 
I think never does the word therefore appear larger in the Bible than it does in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Because of what preceded in the, those wonderful chapters in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, there's sin and repentance, there's salvation and righteousness, there's sanctification and redemption, there's sovereignty and rule, and all of these things brought together uh, that we trust in, that we believe in, that's why we're believers. And now he says, therefore, let me tell you how to live. Let me tell you what to do. And he addresses that to the church at Rome, and of course it's addressed uh, to, to us also. One non-Christian girl was uh, talking to her Christian friend, and the Christian friend had a great testimony before this, her uh, friend, and the non-Christian girl said, I would give the world to have what you have. And the Christian said, that's exactly what it cost me. It cost me the world in order to come to Christ. And so that's what Paul is going to say here. Look at the third word with me, if you will, and we back up again to the word beseech. I beseech you. That's a common translation of this. Some have, I urge you. Another translation has, I appeal to you. The word parakaleo, you know that come alongside word is here, can mean to invite to invoke, to implore, to entreat, to exhort. It can have a lot of expressions in English, but you get the idea, don't you? Please listen and let me come alongside you and implore you or urge you to do these things. It's very urgent, Paul thought, that we take what we know and we apply it to our life. You know, Jesus gave the gospel invitation as this, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and head toward crucifixion. Take up your cross and follow me to my death. And that is exactly what Paul is going to say here in the very first verse, to be a sacrifice, to let it cost you the world to come and follow me. So if we have believed in what's in the first 11 chapters, we need to live what's in these last chapters. Now, there, there are some positives and negatives, especially in verse 2, 3, and 4, as you glance down over the passage, and that is, uh, don't be this way, be this way, or be this and don't be this. You see it, be not conformed, but be transformed, or think like this, not like this. Uh, so I'm going to put all five of these verses in that kind of a bracket. So you see if you're, if you're looking at your bulletin here or uh, on the screen, you see acceptability, not carnality. And I'm going to uh, kind of summarize, I guess, each of the verses with those words, okay? So back to verse 1 again. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, now, by the mercies of God, all of these things that we've learned, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice. Take up your cross now and follow the Lord. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I, I center in on that word acceptable. Acceptable with God, not acceptable to the world. Acceptable to God, not to carnality. Uh, you have that choice to make. You're a believer now, you have the Word of God in front of you. You have the Lord's life as an example. You have Paul's life as an example. 
You see the word service, too, at the very end of the verse. It's the word latria. We get the word liturgical from it. And with that word, Paul draws their thinking back to the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices that are made. When that kind of a word, that liturgical word is used, we even think today a liturgical service, you know, with all the, uh, the pomp and circumstance and the trappings that go along with that kind of service. Well, to, to the Jewish hearers especially, when they heard that word, they're thinking all of that. But you know what Paul is saying to them? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? You are a priest before the living God, and you are the sacrifice to give of yourself. And so when he uses this word acceptable service, he's saying you be all of these things. You be the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You also be the priest who willingly brings the sacrifice, and you be the sacrifice as well. And you present your bodies. Now, he has already said in many places in this book, especially in chapter 6, that your, your body then is the instrument. As a matter of fact, that word in chapter 6 means a weapon. Your body can be a weapon for righteousness or unrighteousness. You can use the members of your body from your eyes to your mouth to your ears and, and all of that as weapons for unrighteousness. It's, a, it's almost a strange thing when you think about it that God has, or, or I mean Paul has taken us to lofty heights of our belief system and our doctrine, and then all of a sudden when he says, now I'm going to tell you how to live, he brings it right back to our bodies, right back to our physical life. We can't escape the fact that we have to live out our faith, that it's not just in the head, it's not just in the heavenlies, it's right here where we are, where we are day by day. So use this body, he says, as a living sacrifice. You're headed toward death, if not martyrdom. You're going to die of old age. So use this, this sacrifice that you have for righteousness. And, he says, what kind of a service is it? A reasonable service? And I, I thought to myself, wouldn't, wouldn't the world say, reasonable? You call this reasonable? I mean, you're, you're asking me to ad adopt a religion uh, to help me, and all you're talking about is you're a living sacrifice? Uh, come, you know, take up your cross and follow me? Is that reasonable? And the world does look at the Christian life as unreasonable. You know what I thought? We've gone by Christmas not too long ago, and Easter not too long ago, let me ask you how reasonable the message of Christmas is or the message of Easter. When you think about it, is a virgin birth reasonable? No, I mean, it's, it's impossible, it seems like to us. Would it be reasonable for God, the living and everlasting God, to take a physical body that he's going to keep forever? Is that reasonable? And yet, when Christmas time comes, what do we talk about? The wonderful news of the incarnation of God into flesh. It's unreasonable to this world, but by our belief system, it's wonderful. And you think about, you think about Easter, too. Uh, dying on a cross, God of all eternity, giving his son and, and he himself in physical form, dying by the hands of those he created. Is that reasonable? 
And we think, no, as a matter of fact, the world still thinks that that's foolishness, right? Paul says to the Corinthians, preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And yet, at Easter time, what do we say? How wonderful it is that God gave himself for us and that he died for us and then resurrected. So is it your reasonable service? It may not seem so to the people of this world, and maybe sometimes it doesn't seem so to you. But throughout eternity, you will praise God for allowing uh, him or for him allowing you uh, to be a living sacrifice to his honor and glory. So acceptability, not carnality in this world. We go to verse 2. We know this verse very well, too. So, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And so I have as the summary of this verse, transformity, not conformity. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. Now, the word transformed is that word morphe, and we get the word metamorphosis, and it means be changed inside out. Be changed completely. You started with the new birth that, that saved your soul and saved your spirit before God. Now let it live out into your physical body from the inside to the outside. And be not conformed to the world. If we're supposed to be transformed to God, he wants, or, or, uh, he wants us not to be conformed. That's the word schema. We get our word schematic from it, which means just an outward appearance. A schematic drawing isn't the real thing. It's just the drawing of it. Don't be conformed simply on the outside of this body that you have, but be transformed from the inside out. We have enough religion in this world, and we shouldn't make Christianity a religion that's just an outward form, right? that we just come and we do outward things, but inside we're something different. No, be transformed completely from the inside out. Now, how do we do that? And by the way, the word world here, be not conformed to this world, is the word age. You know, there's the word cosmos, which means the world and the world system. And then there's that word ion, which means age. What about the age in which we live? They lived in an age that was pretty tough to live in the Roman Empire in the first century and then to be in a church in the middle of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome, pretty hard. Uh, still, we're finding things in the catacombs that, where Christians had to die and be buried and the rest. Pretty tough time to live. Well, what about our age? What about the, the, the age in which we live? You know, Demas, Paul said, forsook me, having loved this current age. He loved the age, and he left his service to go be in the age in which we live. Sometimes we call it the culture. This is the culture in which we live. So don't be conformed just to this age in which you live. There's no blessing in that, and there's no service to God in that. So then he says at the end of the verse, that way you can prove what is good and then acceptable and then the perfect will of God. Well, we all want to know what the will of God is. Maybe there's a lot of ways to look at the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me just maybe offer this one. Maybe most people are satisfied with the good will of God. Just kind of generally, here's what God wants and I'm okay. 
Maybe there are some who are after the acceptable will of God. They really want to be acceptable in his sight. But maybe there's only a few looking for the perfect will of God. Maybe that's what it means. It could mean a lot of different things in this progression of thought that it has. But I'm just asking, where are you in this age uh, with offering yourself as a sacrifice to God? Do you, are you okay with just, okay, it's good enough? Or okay, that's acceptable. Or do you want perfectly what God wants for you? And that, I think, is what Paul is saying, I urge you, I beg you, be this kind of living sacrifice. So transformity, not just conformity to the age. Thirdly, verse 3, humility, not superiority. I love this verse. I say, through the grace given to me, by the way, you could just say there, because I'm an inspired writer and God's told me to say this to you, you know, the grace given to me by God, to everyone who is among you, church at Rome, Faith Baptist Church of Smithville, Missouri, whatever, to everyone that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, here's the contrast, but to think lowly, soberly, as God has dealt to each a measure of faith. So humility is to be sober-minded, and superiority is to be high-minded. Don't be high-minded. I tell you, folks, we live, the, the age in which we live would reverse that immediately and say, don't let anyone make you lowly-minded. Don't let anyone make you sober-minded. You stand up for yourself. You be everything you can be. You take everything you, you can get. You be high-minded. Don't think little of yourself. Well, these two words, there's the word phronos here, which is the word for mind. The uh, phrenology, the study of the bumps on your head. You know, the, the, the phrenology is the word for mind. And so the don't be high-minded is the word hyper, hooper in Greek. Hyper-minded, high-minded. Uh, you think you're the most important person around. You think everything ought to come your way. Uh, you think everybody uh, ought to think the way you think. Don't be high-minded, but so phronos. The word is so and that's where we get the word sober, by the way, which means low mind, or when we, we talk about like sobriety, uh, we mean in your right mind. Don't be drunk with wine where is excess. Be filled with the Spirit. Be right-minded. So he uses these two prefixes to, to talk about the way that you think. When we go back up to the previous verse, what did he say? That, uh, that in your mind that you may be, the renewing of your mind, you have to think right. So again in verse 3, don't think this way, but think that way. It begins with the way we think, doesn't it? You are going to be the kind of person and the kind of living sacrifice that you think you should be. And if you think wrongly, that's the kind of sacrifice you'll be. If you think rightly after God's perfect will, you'll be this kind. So don't think highly of yourself. Again, that's something that our culture doesn't understand. They don't like uh, uh, when we talk like this, that we're supposed to think lowly. But think of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Think of how he left the, the height of heaven and the glory of heaven to come and take a human form as he did. 
think of the fact that, that he was rejected by his own. He came unto the world, and the world knew him not. Think of how he then came as low as you can go to, the, to death, and even the death of a cross, the shame of crucifixion. He did that for us. Surely we can be sober-minded and uh, in our right mind, let's say, because uh, to be lowly-minded is to be in your right mind, to put yourself in the proper relationship to your Lord and Savior. And so at the end of verse 3, then he says, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You know what God has done? He's, he's measured out to you the portion of service that he wants from you. Here's how much I want from you. Here's your measure. And here's your measure. I'm going to put you here, and I'm going to give you these things in your life. And you say, well, wait a minute. What about that person? <laughs> what about them? How come they aren't suffering the things that I'm suffering? God's saying, no, I, I have a measure for them, and I have a measure for you. I know what they can handle. I know what you can handle. No temptation has come, and come to you, but it's common to man. God's faithful. He'll not suffer you to be tempted or tested above what you're able, and we'll make a way of escape. And so he's measured out to you what you need. And remember this, in your portion to him, Jesus is the head and you are the body. He's the head of the church, you are part of the body of the church. The Bible says he's the vine, you're the branches. You're not the vine yourself. Don't think highly like that. You're the branches. He's the shepherd, you're simply the sheep. He is the foundation, the, the chief cornerstone, and you are lively stones built up a spiritual house. And so in all of these analogies we have about our relationship to the Lord, we can't be high-minded. We are sober-minded. And we realize that God has put us where he wants us and caused us to walk through life with the challenges that we have because he knows that's what's best for, for you and therefore best for the whole ministry. So humility, not superiority, he says in verse 3. Verse 4, complementarity, not functionality. I use that word because it's very common today. As a matter of fact, this becomes a controversial word, complementarity. And I say that is God's order, not your own order. Verse 4 says, we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function complementarity, not functionality. Well, what does that mean? It means God has an order for all of us. And in one place you may be set here, and another place you may be set down here. In one place you have leadership, and another place you have followership. Uh, God has uh, that complementary relationship. We're many members, but we're in one body. And in one body, folks, how does the body work? Doesn't, doesn't Paul often say, well, you know, uh, uh, the, the body can't all be an eye because if the, if the body is all an eye, where's the hearing? And if the body's all ears, where's the eyes? And so forth. A body has to have different things that complement one another. As a matter of fact, in verses 4 through 8, as, as we go on in, in uh, this very uh, chapter, let me begin with six, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. 
let us use them if prophecy, let us prophesy. They had such a gift in those days in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches, use that in teaching. If you exhort, use it in exhortation. He who gives, do it with liberality. He who leads, lead with diligence. He who shows mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Why? Because we complement one another when we do this. We all make the body work. Now, functionality, on the other hand, I think what he's saying here is, we do not have all, all the same function, is you might have the word office there. The word literally means practice. We don't all have the same practice. We have a controversy going on in our day right now of whether the Bible teaches complementarianism or egalitarianism. Well, complement, and by the way, you spell that with an E, not an I. To, to compliment somebody spelled with an I just means you pay them a compliment. But with an E, it means you complement that other person. In other words, they do one thing, you do the other, and it may not be equal in some regards, but it works together, right? Now, the, the wonderful thing that God did, I spoke about it this morning, is that God created marriage. And uh, when he created the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, he said that the wife will be a helper uh, comparable to the man. This is exactly what you need, Adam. You need a wife. And the wife has certain responsibilities, and the husband has certain responsibilities. But, of course, the Bible does teach that the husband is the head of the wife. Well, in our, in our culture, people reject that and say, you know, I'm not going to put myself under anybody, including my husband. We're all equal. That's just the way it goes. But the Bible teaches there's a head of that. The Bible also teaches that in the church. Like it or not, uh, men are supposed to do the preaching to the, to the congregation, and uh, women are not to be preachers uh, over the congregation. Some people don't like that, but that's clearly what the Bible says because that's comp we all complement one another with the position we have. Now, if you say, as a wife, I'm going to be equal or even above my husband, then that's called egalitarianism. We're equal in everything. And if you say, well, I'm going to preach just like men preach, then you believe in egalitarianism. We're all equal in every function that we have. And I'm just saying that I think from this verse we're reminded uh, that we are compliments to one another in whatever way God has put us. We're not always equal in every function that we have. I often say that doesn't mean that uh, a, a wife is less talented than her husband. As a matter of fact, most of us husbands would probably admit our wives are much more talented than we are, but it doesn't change the fact that the husband is the head of the home and the wife uh, is the complement to him. Uh, the same thing in an army. You know, a, a soldier may be a, a, a much better fighter, a much better shot than his sergeant, but still out on the field, the sergeant gives the commands. That's just a complementarianism. And that's the way it is in the home, in the church, and sometimes in society at large. We're not all the boss. We're sometimes, you know, we don't all uh, give orders to everybody else. Sometimes we take orders, just the way it is. And so he's saying in the church, uh, be sure that you understand that we all complement one another 
in whatever way or place God has put us, we don't all function the same, or what kind of a body would that be if, if everything was the head, if everything was the eye, if everything was the ear? So, complementarity, not functionality. And then verse 5, I say individual, uh, individually, individuality, and not similarity. Okay, verse 5. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now, we change that look from verse 4 just a little bit here. And that is, though we all complement one another, don't disparage your individuality. I mean, as an individual, you are important. Wherever God puts you, whatever you're doing. As a matter of fact, hold your place here and go to your right to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I've referred to these verses. We'll, we'll read just a few of them. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 12, and let's begin in 14. For in fact, the body is not one member but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I am not of the body. I'm not even important. Is it therefore not of the body? No, we need the foot too. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? No, we, we need the eyes too. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would the smelling be? But now God has set the members, that is individually, each of them, each one of them in the body just as it pleased him, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members and one body. So back to our text in Romans, I'm just saying, now he emphasizes the fact that though we all complement each other with whatever function God has put us in, don't, uh, don't deny the fact that you as an individual are important. You are important to the body no matter what members you are. And you're unique. The reason God has you where you are, the reason why you do the job that you do, the reason why you serve the way you serve, is that that's how God made you, and that's where he wants you as an individual, all right? I say similarity, I think of robots, you know, and, and not the, the ones that look like people, you know, that walk around and do things. It, but, you know, most of the robotic work going on in this country right now are on assembly line type of things. And you've seen those pictures where, you know, these two arms come here and they set this thing here. Then they go back and they get this again, and then they set this down here, you know. Even uh, Henry Ford started, uh, you know, the assembly line with that. And now it's amazing what this robotic world does, but uh, a robot just kind of does the same thing over and over again, never changes, always the same, never, never has any individuality to it. And uh, we're not like that. Whatever we do, wherever we've been put, Paul says, do all to the glory of God. Then we have in verse 5, right at, toward the end, and we are individually members of one another. I suppose someone would say, that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? That is to say we're individuals, but we're members. I mean, how can we be individuals and be a member? Someone might say, I don't want to be a part of a church because then I lose my, my individuality. I want to be who I am. I don't want to be, you know, set into a group uh, of people. 
Well, did you ever hear the word team? Did you ever hear that word? And, you know, if uh, you interviewed uh, someone uh, on the, on the uh, uh, Kansas City Chiefs and you said, uh, what position do you play? And the person might say, I play quarterback. And you turn to somebody else and say, what position do you play? Well, I play wide receiver. Well, then you're, you're not the same? No. I have to do this because this is my gift. I do this because this is my gift. But we are a team. And unless we all do our individual job, our team won't work. It won't win. And that's the way Paul is saying to the church, too. We're individuals. We're not similar either. And so we all have giftedness from God, and that's the way we're supposed to operate. So let me conclude by saying this. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He also said, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You say, really? The sacrificial life you're talking about is an abundant life? You'll find out that it is. You'll find out that though it costs you the world to have a life like this, it's the greatest of all lives, and not only in this life, but in the world to come. And so take up your cross and follow him. Give yourself a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. That's pleasing to him, and you'll find it pleasing to yourself also. Stand with me if you will. We'll pray, we'll sing a song, and ask God to speak to our hearts about these things as well. Father, thank you for uh, these familiar verses in the book of Romans. Thank you for the church at Rome in the first century and every other church, including ours, that has learned from this message, this letter that you gave them. And Father, I pray that we would take it to heart tonight as individuals, as families, and as a church, that we would learn uh, the things that we should do, the things that we should not do, and build our action upon our faith. So thank you for these things. Bless in the time we sing. We'll ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken's going to come and lead us in a song as we think about these things. <laughs>